The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So the cast for him is his opponent, right? His opponent is not Macri, it's not Cristina Kirchner, it's not one person, it's this political cast. And he has redefined what being part of the caste means. So to him, being part of the caste means that you object the changes that he's proposing. So if you were a politician for a hundred years, but you want to embrace the changes that he proposes, then Millet says, fine, then you're not part of the caste, no matter where you come from. Now, if you object these changes, it is because you want to maintain you know, the old privileges, and then you're part of the cast. So that's how he has redefined these. I am Eugenia Lohtri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology, Policy, and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 13, 2023. You may have heard of Javier Millet, Argentina's new president, thanks to some of his eccentricities, like his five clone dogs or his reliance on a chainsaw prop to illustrate the need to cut public expenditure. But Millet was able to harness the dissatisfaction with a system that has left the country with 150% inflation and over 40% of the population under the poverty line. Now, the self-described anarcho-capitalist libertarian will attempt to turn the economy around with shocking fiscal adjustment. To discuss this inflection point in Argentina, I was joined by Ana Iparraguirre, a partner at consulting firm GBAO, and a frequent commentator on leading Latin American media outlets. We talked about Millet's rise to power, if and how he can deliver on his campaign promises, and what that would even mean for the Argentinian people. It's the Lawfare podcast for December 13, Argentina's new president, an anarcho-capitalist in the pink house. So at the time of recording is day one of Millet's new government in Argentina. But getting here was a little bit of a roller coaster with each step of the way bringing surprises from Millet's performance at the Paso or the primaries back in August, then Massa winning the first round, and then ultimately a sweeping victory from Millet in the runoff in November. So could you get us started with a brief background on the candidates and what their platform looked like? And ultimately, what were the choices available for the Argentinian electorate? this year. Well, thank you very much, Eugenia, for having me. This was a very strange election for Argentina. For a very long time, Argentina has had its economy turned upside down. But the politics of Argentina were pretty 
were working pretty well. We have two broad coalitions that were alternating power, one more center left, one more center right. And so our political system was working pretty effectively, uh, uh, but not so well for the people. Because the economy has been struggling for so long, and the people started blaming the political class for the situation they were in, something started breaking in these coalitions. And so suddenly these two coalitions were seen as responsible for where the country was heading and Argentines were looking for something different. And in that context, the political offer that Argentinians had in this election was a little bit different. So you had a strong primary in the center-right coalition of Juntos por el Cambio with two candidates, Rodríguez Larreta, who was the front-runner for a while, and he was the more moderate candidate, and Patricia Bullrich, who was a more extreme or tough candidate uh, on that coalition. And then you had an outsider, Javier Millet, running from behind, who represented you know, a right-wing radical change, and then you had, you know, the uh, coal- the Peronist coalition in power that was presenting Massa as their main unity candidate and a very small left-wing candidate running in the primary for that coalition who was Grabois. So what happened in the primary? Well, the primary basically showed Millet as the candidate who got won the most votes. That was a big surprise for the political system in Argentina. Then in the right-wing coalition, the more radical candidate, uh, Patricia Bullrich, won. And then Massa, as expected, won in the governing coalition. So that was the offer that the electorate had. You know, one candidate that represented continuity, a candidate that represented a radical change who was Javier Millet, and then, you know, a tough candidate on the right-wing coalition. That was the first choice that voters had in the general election. So Millet began his trajectory into public office only in 2021, when he was elected as a national deputy. And, And he was always a bit of a French character, I would say. Like you mentioned, he was running as an outsider. And I don't think anyone anticipated back then that he would become our next president. So how did he manage that? What do you think that he tapped into that allowed him to build a national platform in just two years? Well, I need to say that even though it was hard to anticipate that, you know, he would win the election as he did, I think if you look at his candidacy and his persona and you had some global understanding of what had happened in other countries, it was certainly easy to see that his foundation was very solid. And what was his foundation? Well, his foundation was, first of all, radical change. And two-thirds of Argentines wanted radical change before we headed into uh, 2023 election. Not just any kind of change like they wanted when Macri won in 2015, when they, you know, they wanted change, but they wanted to make sure they preserved certain things from the old government, like social plans or, you know, maintaining, you know, public state companies like Aerolíneas Argentinas. So, But this time they wanted to go as further away from the past as they could. They they really wanted, you know, deep change in Argentina. And Millet represented that. 
The other thing that he represented was authenticity. You know, suddenly we had a candidate who was saying all these politically incorrect things. Yes, about the Pope. Yes, about abortion, but also about the economy, saying, look, this system is just not sustainable anymore. We cannot continue to raise taxes. We cannot continue to spend as we are spending. The political class is just like, you know, stripping resources away from the private sectors and from people, and we need to stop that. And those were things that were considered politically incorrect in Argentina. We had not had like a debate about like taxes for a very long time or about like government spending and so and so he starts saying all these and people say well i may or may not agree with what this guy is saying but at least he's telling me the truth and so i can't believe it believe him he's authentic and so that was the second component of his you know of his platform i think and the third one was dollarization where you know there was a strong debate like do people understand what dollarization mean do people want dollarization can we dollarize our economy but what voters heard was like, look, this guy is serious about, you know, attacking the main problem that we have, which is inflation, a problem that we have had for a very long time. And he's serious about it. And he knows how to do it because he's an economist. And many people thought like, you know, when he talked about the economy, they could not understand what he was saying with all these complex terms that he was using. But they were like, well, this is a guy who knows, you know, his staff. And so I think all those components together you know, is what projected him to the presidency. And in the meantime, you had, you know, a political class that was not understanding what was going on, was still offering voters the same thing that they had been offering for a long time. And they did not understand that, you know, voters were like, okay, we've had enough, you know, we tried, you know, with you, several times and you just couldn't deliver what we needed. So we may as well just try something good that may or may not resolve our problems, but at least we're trying, you know, an alternative. Right. And that kind of approach, that authenticity, do you think resonated across different voter demographics or was it mostly focused on on a particular group? Yes, certainly. I think that was the most interesting thing that happened in this campaign. For a very long time, campaigns in Argentina had been defined by Kirchnerism against anti-Kirchnerists, right? So you had like the Kirchneristas and people who opposed the Kirchneristas. And actually, the opposition coalition had little in common with each other. The only thing that maintained them united was the threat of a strong Kirchnerismo who could, that could win in the first round. So unless they stayed together, you know, they, they risked like losing the election in the first round. And once Kirchnerismo weakened, then there was not a lot of reasons for this coalition to maintain like united. And so you started seeing a lot of frictions there in that coalition. And Millet went into the political spectrum saying like, look, this is not about Kirchnerism or anti-Kirchnerism. In fact, and we can talk about that later, if you see his relationship with Cristina Kirchner yesterday when he uh, was sworn in, was a very cordial relationship. They even smiled and laughed. And that's something that would have been absolutely impossible between Cristina and Mauricio Macri. So, so he says like, this is not about like anti-Kirchnerism. I'm, I'm proposing something different. Now, What's going to divide and define this election is the caste, the political caste and their privileges, 
and the rest of Argentine citizens. And that allowed Millet to build a very broad coalition that included men, although not only men, that included mostly young people who were the first, one, first ones who arrived to the Millet-like phenomenon, but it also included lower-income people that Macri had never been able to appeal to. And so because these lower income people feel like, okay, you know, this is a guy who is like against the powerful, well, he may be for me. But that was not what they saw in Mauricio Macri. They never really saw a guy who was going to go against the powerful. And so I think that really broke how the, um, the society in Argentina was organized politically. We'll see whether he's able to maintain that as he governs. But if he does, it really redefines how the coalitions and the political spectrum is organized in Argentina. So that's interesting, right? Because if I remember correctly, back in 2015, Cristina Kirchner, who was, you know, the, the president at the time, didn't even show up to the transfer of power uh, when she was supposed to hand it over to Macri, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's something different here. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I like to say is like, well, most of Argentines were surprised by Millet's victory, but there were two people who were not surprised, Mauricio Macri and Cristina Kirchner. Both of them had been president. And both of them, in March, April this year, they stated publicly that the runoff election was going to be against Millet. Macri said, like, we're going to go, you know, he, saw, he thought his coalition was going to go into a runoff with Millet. That didn't happen. But he saw Millet in the second round. And Cristina Kirchner said in March, April this year that this one was going to be an election that was going to be divided in three thirds. And Millet was going to be the owner of one of those thirds. And I think they both saw that, that Millet was creating something new that was not there before. And I think they were able to see that because at some point in their careers, they both created something that was not there before. Like Macri created his own political party outside of the traditional parties in Argentina. Cristina Kirchner created all these, you know, very progressive, like Kirchnerismo that wanted to redefine the society in Argentina. So they, they, they both created something new. And I think they both sort of admire that in Millet. They see him as a real leader. We'll see whether he's able to fulfill that, but they see in him someone who's, you know, creating something new, who has certain charisma that, you know, certainly Cristina did not recognize in the current, pre in the well, past president, Alberto Fernandez. In the interaction with Millet, I thought that was, you know, very telling in the way she recognizes him and his ability to, you know, create a political base. You know, in politics, the way your wealth is defined on the number of votes that you have, in your loyalists, how many loyalists do you have? Because the rest will come and go, right? Clearly, we all understand Millet doesn't have 56% of support. He has 30 but that's a lot. That's a lot. And what that 30%, you can certainly, you know, define the public discussion if you manage to maintain it. Like, just like Cristina Kirchner with her 20, 25%, whatever stronghold of voters she had, she was not able to win with that, but she was able to veto anyone. And that's a lot of power in politics. I, I want to do a, a very brief detour here and just provide a little bit of background in case anyone in the audience might not be fully familiar. But you mentioned that prior to Millet's kind of inflection point, the political space in Argentina was divided into 
kind of Kirchneristas and anti-Kirchneristas. Could you maybe say a little bit more about what those two spaces stood for? Like, why would being anti-Kirchnerista be enough to bring all of these disparate groups into one coalition? Right. So the Kirchnerista coalition, you know, was Peronist uh, coalition, uh, but a left-wing Peronist coalition. So Peronism is a movement in Argentina that included, like, you know, left-wing, you know, uh, presidents like Nestor Kirchner, but also right-wing presidents like Carlos Menem, who's someone that Millet actually admires and it's his role model in many ways. So after the Kirchners came into power, especially after Cristina Kirchner, this left-wing coalition catered towards the most progressive wing of the party, right? With the new, you know, Campora youth movement, um, they catered to, you know, against, you know, the old militaries, uh, the old military from the 70s. They catered for, you know, progressive issues like abortion or, you know, um, gay rights or even trying to impose like this, you know, inclusive uh, language. And so this became a more like, you know, left-wing coalition and catered mostly, mostly above all these to the poor. And that's something that's been the traditional uh, connection between Peronism and the most vulnerable, like poor in Argentina with social plans, but also always recognizing that they were, you know, the most important uh, constituency that they had. On the other hand, the right-wing coalition tended to be more like pro-democracy, more pro-like strong institutions, accountability, but also catering towards like the middle class and, you know, the upper income like people. And so as you probably know, there's more like the vulnerable and poor class in Argentina is bigger and broad, broadening, unfortunately. And so... In that space, Peronism had a big base of support that the traditional right-wing coalition had never been really able to penetrate because there were a lot of, like, you know, suspicion against them. Well, at the end of the day, if they have to decide between me and the rich and powerful, who are they going to, you know, help? They're not going to help me that I'm poor. They're going to always going to side with the rich and powerful. Now, they didn't simulate as that. They didn't simulate in that same category. They saw him as something different, someone who cared about the poor and was willing to stand up against the rich and powerful. And that's something they really valued from him. They didn't see him as a partner of, you know, old businesses in Argentina. Back to Millet, you know, you mentioned you hinted at this before, but he ran a pretty, I would say, kind of controversial campaign with proposals that really run the gamut from relaxing gun ownership, holding a referendum to recriminalize abortion, and then, of course, dollarizing the economy, shutting down the central bank. And now he's the president and actually needs to find a way to deliver and govern. And with that comes negotiating and compromise. And of course, he doesn't really own, you know, in air quotes, own those 55% of the of the votes. He owes a little bit of that, at least to the Juntos por el Cambio uh, support that he received after the first round. And there's also the fact that there are checks and balances that could pose kind of hurdles to some of the proposals. Now, we have an example from yesterday, 
where his first measure was a decree of necessity and urgency that restructured the cabinet configuration and reduced the ministries from, correct me if I'm wrong, but from 18 down to nine, which is something that he had indeed promised to do during the campaign. So my question is, how much can he deliver through executive action? And what are the proposals where he may face some challenges because he needs to compromise, he needs to negotiate, he has to convince different parties in Congress to to support him? Well, I think that's the biggest question that Argentina has, like moving forward. Millet has become president with a lot of popular support, even if it's now that 56, I mean, 30%, it's still like a lot of popular support. And uh, for someone who doesn't owe much to anyone, right, he built his own political party. Um, and so he owns a bit to like Juntos por el Cambio, he's paying off there, but he doesn't really owe a lot to anyone. Like he can basically do whatever he wants. He, he doesn't have a lot of like, you know, restrictions from other from the political system. But he's very, very weak in institutional terms, right? It's the first time we're going to have a president who has like zero governors, zero of his political co- uh, color, who has like 10% of the Senate. 15% of the Congress, Congress of diputados, of the members of Congress. That's really, really weak. Just to give you an idea, on average, uh, all the presidents from 83 until now have had at least like 40% of Congress. So he comes into this with a very weak institutional like standing. So what is he going to do then? So he has to show results, right? Positive results. That's his only way forward. But he knows that that's not going to happen in the near future. He knows he's not going to be able to show results at least for a year. So he's leaning into the symbolic uh, politics, into all the symbols, how he can show people and maintain voter support for as long as possible. So what's going to happen? Well, if he manages to show results, then I think we're going to see a Javier Millet who's like more moderate, more pragmatic, like the Millet that we have been seeing since he won the election. And then we're going to see a, an opposition that's, that's also more moderate and pragmatic because, you know, voters are going to demand that, you know, some of the good economic policies from Millet are maintained if he has good results. Now, if he doesn't, have good results, then what is it that we're likely to see? Well, then we're likely going to see a Javier Millet who's going to lean on his more radical political base, who's going to have to tap into like social, more controversial social issues to keep like his political base motivated. But so far, what he has indicated uh, very explicitly in the speech that he gave yesterday, but also on all the interviews that he gave since he won the election, is like, I have one mission here. My mission is the economy and fiscal responsibility, and that's what I'm going to focus on. In fact, in one interview that I thought it was very telling that he gave after he won, I think the day after he won, he said, like, look, I have a mandate. My mandate is to reduce inflation, improve salaries, try to reduce insecurity, and the rest, well, the rest is life. 
That's exactly what he said, meaning like, you know, the rest is not my deal. We'll see what happens with the rest. And in the speech that he delivered yesterday, also, his focus was like almost 100% on the economy. And he didn't really tap into other issues, um, mining, environment. You know, he talked just slightly about education and infrastructure, but that was it. You know, he didn't talk about all the issues that a president is supposed to talk when they deliver their their speech. So um, so we'll see what happened. I think at the end of the day, you know, what Javier Millet we see moving forward will depend on whether he's able to deliver results or not. And then another element that I thought was interesting, and I wonder how it's going to shape what Millet we see, is that even though throughout the campaign, he kind of run and, and had indeed a chant asking the political elite, the Casta, you know, to leave, saying que se vayan todos. That was one element that he said, I'm just going to have everyone leave and then we're going to bring this actual radical change. But now that he is the president, we actually see that he's bringing in some experienced politicians from even other parties to fulfill some of the key roles. And in the meantime, even some of his closest allies, you know, people like Ramiro Marra or Carolina Piparo, who run for governor of the city of Buenos Aires and the province of Buenos Aires, respectively, they have not secured roles in the cabinet. So is your expectation that bringing in these new members, people from outside his own party, will they have to adopt Millet's vision, fully embrace that in order to maintain their roles, or will they temper his political agenda? Well, first of all, let's try to understand how he has redefined the caste. So the caste for him is his opponent, right? His opponent is not Macri, it's not Cristina Kirchner, it's not one person, it's this political caste. And he has redefined what being part of the caste means. So to him, being part of the caste means that you object the changes that he's proposing. So if you were a politician for 100 years, but you want to embrace the changes that he proposes, then Millet says, fine, then you're not part of the caste, no matter where you come from. Now, if you object these changes, it is because you want to maintain you know, the old privileges, and then you're part of the caste. So that's how he has redefined these. Now, sorry, sorry, Anna, to interrupt. But, you know, like this redefinition comes in the middle of the campaign, right? This is not how he started defining the caste. He was, I think, pretty explicit about the caste being everyone who had been, you know, in power before, right? Absolutely. So the question is, is this believable? So is this transformation believable? Are people going to follow through with that? So I think, you know, they will follow through as long as he continues to move forward with the agenda, the symbolic agenda that he has been promoting, like having, you know, we all know that reducing like the ministries from 18 to 9 doesn't really reduce like fiscal deficit. I mean, that's not going to help. You know, it's just, it's marginal, but that's symbolic. That's a big sign to like his supporters. So he's going to continue to do the things. We're going to have to see whether, you know, he manages to continue to feed his supporter with these sort of symbolic policies that will help them, you know, continue to feel and see him as someone who's going against 
the cast, even though he's surrounded by old like politicians and savvy politicians, which he needs to be able to move forward his agenda. Now, I always like to talk about like um, a parallel between this and what and Cristina Kirchner because. You know, people say, well, now that he's like in government, I mean, and he's surrounded by the, all these, you know, old like dinosaurs, are people really going to continue to believe that he's an outsider, that he's fighting against the caste? And I said, like, well, it's, I don't know if he'll manage to do it, but it's possible. Just like when you saw Christina Kirchner fighting for the most vulnerable and he was, and she was wearing watches that cost more than what the people who were seeing her at rallies will make in their lifetimes they still saw her as someone who was fighting for the most vulnerable because there's like a symbolic politics of priorities that she, you know, at tough junctures, she always, you know, made sure like people understood where she stood. And so she could wear like these, you know, expensive watches and purses and still be, you know, the person that represented the poor. So, the question is, is Millet going to be able to pull off the same thing, like surround, be surrounded by old politicians that are part of the caste, but continue at critical junctures to show voters that when he has to choose, he's going to choose, you know, the people over the powerful. That's the question and whether he's going to be able to do that, even though he's surrounded by the caste itself. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. You know, as I listen to you talk about this, I feel a little bit validated because one word that I've been using to describe my understanding of what's going on is, I don't know, it's all uncertain, right? Uncertainty has been kind of the predominant feeling for me. And, you know, while that is true, there is one thing that I can't really fault uh, Millet for, and that is <laughs> lack of proposals. He definitely has a lot of proposals. I think, of course, some of his most attention-grabbing ones, the ones that he likes to talk about the most because of his background, are around the economy, how to turn it around. Now, Argentina is facing around 150% inflation. We have around 40% of the population under the poverty line. So tell us a little bit more about his plan for the economy. How is he hoping to address all of this? And how viable do you think the plan is? Well, first I'd say we don't know. We have no idea. I mean, no one, I think tomorrow is the first day the economy minister is going to talk and he's going to give some you know, indication of where the economy is heading. So we really don't know what I would say something like he did have many proposals, but I don't think his support was a support for a specific economic plan. 
In fact, if you look it up at his, you know, flagship proposal like dollarization, only six out of 10 voters of La Libertad Avanza, like his political party, favored dollarization. That's extremely low. I mean, if you, if your own supporters, only six out of 10 support your flagship policy, in other circumstances, I would say like, hey, dude, you have a problem here. Well, he didn't have a problem because his support was not because of this proposal. His support was because people wanted change and as radical as it, you could possibly get it and authenticity and someone who would fight, you know, they could believe in. And so it was going in a different direction. So I think there is some flexibility in terms of the proposal because people did not vote for a specific economic plan. Now, we don't know what that plan is going to it's going to be there's a lot of like new people in government also a lot of people who have been in Macri's government so they have been in power just like four years ago so they have some understanding of what's going on and we'll have to see I mean I think he was you know smart yesterday but also took a big political risk I mean he understood for Mac from Macri that there's two things that he needs to do he needs to explain people that what's going to come ahead you know, manage expectations. You know, what's coming ahead, it's going to be rough, very rough, he said yesterday. And then it's not going to happen, you know, gradually. We're going to go to a, into a shock policy and we're going to do it fast and we're going to implement it all together. We'll see whether he manages to do that, but that's what he's proposing people. He's not going to try to like negotiate. He's going to try to go all in. And so that's very different from what, what Macri did. But he did another thing that's very different. Traditionally, presidents say like, okay, I'm going to deliver the good news. I'm going to have my finance minister deliver the bad news. Yesterday, he was the one delivering the bad news, you know. So how long, you know, is that going to be sustainable for? Is he going to be able to continue to deliver bad news and still have the support of the people? Because yesterday, when he said explicitly, there's no more money, People were cheering. I had never seen something like that in Argentina before. And I'm struggling to think about any other country of the world where their leader says, like, there's no more money and people cheer. I mean, I, if you know of an example, let me know. Because I, to me, it's the first time I saw something like that. So I think we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens. But certainly, his economic policies, there's some flexibility there on how to really define what the economic plan is going to be. The question is, do they have an economic plan? And we haven't really seen that yet. So there seems to be a tension here, right? Because you say that he was elected because he was going to bring this radical change, but his specific policies, even his flagship policies, don't have big support from the people that chose him. And do you think that once the plan, whatever the plan is, comes into motion and it starts actually affecting people's livelihood, right? Like it's going to be rough. It's going to be a shock. It's going to be quick. That's going to be a lot of people who are already living in a very uncertain economy and it's going to affect more people. It, will that affect his support and what would tempered radical change look like, if not? That will certainly affect his support. It will. The, he's going into this with, you know, an opposition that also doesn't really know where it stands. It doesn't have like a clear path of what type of opposition is going to be, who's going to lead that opposition. 
So, so he's got some time there in terms of having like his opponents like confused. But certainly, once he applies the policies that he said yesterday he wanted to apply in terms of like reducing like government spending, that's going to have a direct effect on people's like pockets. I mean, he said yesterday we should anticipate a fifty five zero fifty percent monthly inflation, fifty percent monthly inflation. That's impossible. I mean, it's just like. And so that's going to send like a lot of people below the poverty line. So what's going to happen with that? Are we going to have social unrest? And if we have social unrest, is he going to be willing to take the policemen out on the streets to try to calm them down? I think that's the big question, you know, or are people going to say like, okay, you know, let's like deep briefly try to suck it up like, you know, three months, six months and see if we can, you know, get on the other side. Well, we don't really know what's going to happen with that. You know, we have Christmas right around the corner. That's generally a very tense uh, period of time in Argentina uh, with people like having more like social demands for like, you know, Christmas boxes and food and presents. And so it's generally the most like tense social moment in Argentina. And so he's going to be implementing these reforms at a time that's very sensitive for Argentines uh, because they want to like take like food to their table because they want to have like a gift for their kids. And so I think that's, you know, the big question that we have moving forward. I mean, how much Argentine society that's already struggling, it's already like on the fence are going to be able to put up with. And then there's the question of the timeline, right? I've heard that it's going to take from a year to two years for things to start getting back on track coming from his people. Do you think there will be a plan for how to support the population in the meantime? Or is it, you know, you just got to face it for two years and then things will slowly be better? Well, if there is a plan, I have not seen it. Okay. Um, and they have not like put it forward. So I wouldn't anticipate there is. I mean, there is a social network of support in Argentina with social plans that if he doesn't like dismantle that, that should serve uh, Sam. But like, how are you going to sustain that? And at the same time, cut like government spending is something very hard to explain. So I think we should be, you know, heading into having like, social tension. I mean, we should anticipate that there is going to be like social tension on the streets in the future as people start feeling, you know, because it's going to come from everyone, everywhere, you know, it's going to come from like rising inflation, it's going to have from like higher like tariffs for utilities, like gas, electricity. I think gas, like for cars, like increased like 30% yesterday or the day before. So I think, you know, it's going to hit you from absolutely everywhere. And so, in an economy that's more deregulated, how are you going to be able to, you know, make sure people don't lose their jobs? So I think it's going to be, you know, very, very, very tough. Now, the question is, is there someone on the other side? Is this going to be just chaos of like unarticulated demands? Or is there someone on the other side who's going to lead this protest, who's going to be able to capitalize, you know, on all the, you know, rejection that these policies are going to have in a large part of society? Well, well, so far, we have not seen that person yet. You know, Cristina has very high and favorable uh, numbers. There doesn't seem to be someone there who's like sticking up their neck yet. 
So we'll see, is it going to be Axel Kisilov from the province of Buenos Aires, who seems to be, you know, the leader of the Peronist party, you know, after Massa's defeat? Well, we don't know yet, you know, and so I think we're going to have to to see whether, you know, someone articulates as the, you know, spokesperson for all these protests, or we are just seeing like, you know, isolated like protests that are not really being capitalized by a different political force. So you mentioned tariffs. And I think that's interesting, especially for a utility like electricity, as Argentina is heading into the summer. How do you see that playing out? Well, if you lift tariffs, I mean, most likely you're going to have energy. It's not that you're going to have, you know, power cuts, but... Um, we always have power cuts, though. <laughs> yeah, but not, I, I mean, it shouldn't be significant. Now they have the gasoducto. I mean, I think, I, I, I do not anticipate that if they lift tariffs, like, but I'd like to see whether they can do it and whether the Supreme Court lets them do it. Remember when Macri wanted to do this, he hit like a wall with the Supreme Court. And so he had to like reverse a lot of his policies. So we'll have to see whether he's able to do it. If he doesn't do it, then I think we're going to be strained like in terms of, you know, electricity. And I think, you know, Diana Mondino, her um, secretary, his secretary of state already said, well, you know, some businesses should start buying electric power generators to provide for their own electricity. So she already warned them about that. So that will be something that I think the markets are expecting to have tariffs like deregulated because it's like a long-standing problem for Argentina. But once you get your bill and you realize that you're going to be paying like, you know, eight, ten times more for electricity that you were paying. And at the same time, you're going to have, as I mentioned, like 50% like inflation in food and schools and, you know, and gas and everything else. Like, how are you going to pay for all that? I mean, you can increase like tariffs as much as you want, but are people going to be able to pay for it? With the current salaries, I mean, sounds like that's, you know, pretty unlikely. Another big element or a topic of discussion during the campaign was security. And Millet has now brought in Patricia Woolrich, who you talked about before, to take over her past position as Minister of Security. What do you think that tells us about the priorities in that space? I think, you know, he knows there's two concerns from Argentina. The first one and the biggest concern is inflation. And the second one is insecurity connected with drugs. I think, you know, Patricia Bullrich has strong legitimacy on this issue as someone who has fought that, someone who has like, you know, uh, empowered uh, the police to fight against uh, crime. And so he basically, you know, empowered Patricia Bullrich to take care of this issue, which he thinks you know, it's something that they should focus on. But that's not his main agenda or his main concern, which I repeat is the economy. That's what he's really focused on. But I'd say like, if you have to pick like one second tier issue important to him, well, that would be like security for sure. So I'd say, you know, he has decided to like put this in the hands of Patricia Woodridge, who's someone who has had like experience on this area and it's pretty well respected on this area. And, you know, it's well known for being like tough on crime. And so so we'll see whether she's able to deliver results now. When if you one thing is to fight crime and organized crime and a very different thing is like, how do you manage like protests on the street if they are widespread and across the board? 
Like, what do you do about that? You cannot just like take like the policemen to like, you know, repress like protests if you have them like all across the country. So we'll see if that happens. If that happens, I think that's going to pose like a serious challenge to Patricia Woolrich on how to handle that in a way that, of course, like respects like people's, you know, right to protest. Does she have any particular track record in terms of managing uh, social protests? Well, they have, you know, they, 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 throughout the campaign, she has quoted uh, one uh, time and again, the case of Jujuy or Mendoza, where basically what they did is uh, when you had organized protests, um, they, they froze the accounts of those who organized the protests, right? So if you had like a union that was organizing a protest and blocking roads, then you would freeze, you know, that union's account because they were blocking roads and they were like, you know, basically infringing other people's like right to go through that road. And, you know, that's fine. If it's like an organized protest, I think you have a lot of like measures to fight that. If protests are like organic and you start having like groups of people like protesting, like in different places, what are you going to do? You can't like freeze their accounts. I mean, you just... There's only one thing you can do, which is like basically take the policemen on the street or just let them protest. So I think that's a very different different situation than the one she had to intervene uh, before and the experience that she quoted during the campaign in Mendoza and Jujuy. It's a very different scenario. Now, I want to talk for a few minutes about the actual transfer of power ceremony that happened this past Sunday. There were some Interesting attendance. You had Ukraine Zelensky, Hungary's Orban, Chilis Boric, but who wasn't there? Well, I think, you know, to me, that's one of the most interesting aspects of Millet. It's very easy to say, look, he's just another right wing populist like Trump or Bolsonaro. But if you look at him, like there's like some very big differences. And I think looking at who was there and who was not there yesterday, you can certainly see, you know, that he's not just like, you cannot just put him in that box. He's a bit different. And he's very different because of his libertarian profile, right? He has like an economic perspective that it's different. Like, you know, both, you know, Trump, he ran like fiscal deficits, like while he was president. And if you look at, you know, Orban, I mean, he had like big social programs, especially in rural areas. I mean, Millet is different. He says, you know, he's a libertarian. And so he wants to to have like, you know, no deficit at all and to have like a very small uh, government. And that's different. And if you look at his international position, that's also very different. I mean, yesterday, you know, the main star of his swearing in was Zelensky. Zelensky is opposed to Putin, a good friend of both Trump and a good friend of Orban, for example, who was there yesterday and Millet barely paid attention to. So I think you can see in his international alliances something different. So in terms of who was not there, I'd say, you know, the main figure who was not there is Lula da Silva, right? Bolsonaro was there with his son and a bunch of people, and Millet was very friendly to Bolsonaro. But Lula was not there, even though, you know, he sent, you know, uh, the person that Lula sent was the first person to greet Millet after he was sworn in. So they managed to, like, build those bridges. So we'll have to, you know, I think, 
clearly there will be some tensions um, there, but I don't think we should assume she's going to be, you know, a cookie cutter uh, example of, you know, Bolsonaro or Trump or any of these leaders. I think we're going to see some aspects of his ideology that are going to be mixed uh, into his profile and his policies. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Putin and Russia because what was it in February of last year, we had Alberto Fernandez, then president, say that Argentina would be Russia's door into Latin America. And it seems like we have a very different position from Millet. Certainly, certainly like very different. I mean, his support, if anyone who watched, and I think it's in the cover of the Wall Street Journal today, like uh, Millet's hug with Zelensky. I mean, if you looked, the level of support that Millet gave Zelensky, not that, you know, I don't know how that how much that means in terms of like geopolitics or, you know, uh, military aid, but it was clear that he was very emotional and very, and wanted to make, you know, specific gestures towards Zelensky, partly because, you know, he's against like communism in general and, you know, autocrats. And so, you know, he's obviously like against Putin. He said that during the campaign. And part of it, because I think he reflects himself in an outsider who was a comedian who came into power and ended up having to fight like a war against like a big enemy being like a small country. And so I think he sees himself reflected in many aspects of Zelensky's like leadership, uh, saving like the big distances between both of them. And so and, and so he made a very strong attempt to show how important for him was Zelensky. Now, he's doing other things that are also surprising. You know, we're going to have you know a rabbi as ambassador to israel for the first for the first time the the traditional mass that leaders go to after they are sworn in was turned into a multi-religion uh, uh, ceremony where the main figure of that ceremony was a rabbi and not a, a priest so i think you know there's a lot of things in these how he's managing like international relations uh, that are very different from what we have seen in the past and from the alliances that we have seen uh, between Argentina and other countries in the past uh, few years. Macri also had a very different like foreign policy from his predecessor, but he did it like sort of like halfway through his mandate. I think Millet understands the symbolism uh, better and it's a bigger part of what he believes in and he's gonna you know make it a part of his agenda from day one so one of the things that i keep getting comments about people are kind of interested in is, are some of Millet's eccentricities right i get a lot of questions about his clone dogs or whether he's wearing a wig and it's easy to get lost in that a little bit and kind of dismiss him as, as you said, a cookie cutter, far right president now. So I guess I want to wrap the conversation by asking you if there's anything that you want an audience that, you know, might not be following these issues necessarily that closely or have only heard of Millet in those general terms, what would you want them to take out of this entire conversation? What should be the upshot of all of this? Well, I think, yeah, it's clearly easy to get like lost and, you know, undermine Millet. 
because of all these eccentricities, right? It's just, he's not going to be able to govern. This is just like crazy. Uh, he's just focused on his dogs. And yes, he has all that eccentricity, but I think it's that eccentricity what allows him to not be held back or hostage of a lot of traditions, uh, political traditions, that he's able to say like, well, I'm just going to do it differently. You know, I'm just, I'm not going to talk to the Congress members. I'm going to talk outside to the people uh, when I'm sworn in. I'm not going to parade with my partner. I'm going to parade with my sister, who's the most important person for me. And, you know, I'm not going to, you know, um, broadcast the swearing in of my ministers. I'm just going to do it closed doors. So he's, he's less attached to all these things. And that allows him to think outside the box in many ways. And that confuses his opponents because when they think he's not going to be able to do certain things because it has never been done before, well, he does the things that had never been done before. Now, one thing is when you're dealing with symbolic things and a different things is when you're dealing with you know, the economy. It has like rules and consequences. And when you're dealing with, you know, sending you know, an omnibus bill to Congress, well, that has consequences. Then you really need to get the number of Congress members you need to get your bill passed. And as of now, we don't really know if he has that number of votes. I mean, it seems like he doesn't have it, whether he's going to be able to, you know, manage to get support for that omnibus bill that he's supposed to send to Congress like this week, you know, we don't know yet whether he's going to have that support. So it's easy to get lost in all these eccentricities. I think that allows him to think outside the box and, you know, have his communication be different from what we have seen before and allow him to differentiate himself from other politicians. But at the end of the day, there's certain things that need to be done in a certain way or otherwise you can't, like, move forward with your reforms. And so... So whether at the end of the day, he's going to be able to put aside those eccentricities and focus on, you know, the things that you really need to get done in order to move forward your agenda, we don't know if he's going to be able to do that. So far, he has seemed to be very pragmatic in terms of how he formed his cabinet and the people he has in there and how he, you know, set aside some of his initial supporters that, you know, did not have government experience like Marra and Piparo, as you mentioned earlier on. But at the end of the day, is he going to be able to get the votes he needs to pass the bills that he needs to pass? That's, you know, the big question. And, and unfortunately, we don't even know whether the best result is for those measures to even pass, right, for the Argentinian people. It is, you know, that same eccentricity, that uncertainty that you've been kind of bringing throughout the conversation as a theme that that makes it kind of concerning what is going to be the best path forward for the actual people. Absolutely. I mean, we don't know what that omnibus bill that they keep talking about is. I mean, no one has seen it. I mean, maybe the people in his cabinet, but certainly like not the public. So we don't really know what that entails. I mean, is it just like economic policies, just include like social policies? Like what is in that package that he's supposed to send to Congress. Well, we have no idea what's in there. And so, you know, I think he has some support for economic policies and it seems like that's what he's really focused on. 
I mean, is he going to have to throw in some social policies to be able to get the support that he needs? So like, what's the final package that goes to Congress? What does that look like? What does it have inside? Because clearly, you know, he's going to have to negotiate. So once you start negotiating, you don't know what the final deal is going to be and what's going to be in there, right? Okay, so the upshot of this entire conversation is we really don't know. Stay tuned. (laughs) in and as we all figure it out together I guess absolutely I mean there's a lot of uncertainty we've left like one thing behind now we know who the new president is and that's the uncertainty we have been dealing with for the past year and a half I think in Argentina so the question now is like okay now we know who he is uh, but we still don't know what he's gonna do (laughs) well that's the big one Anna thank you so much for joining me thank you Eugenia it was a pleasure The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,